This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Another edition of Hotspot Hamilton. We have uh, covered a number of different topics, of course, over the last number of weeks here on Hotspot Hamilton. And today we want to focus on uh, a big challenge, not just for the city of Hamilton, but I think for every community going forward. And that, of course, is education and uh, the boards of education and the, the uh, challenges, and uh, let's face it, some of the victories that I think that the wards have, have uh, been able to accomplish over the last number of years. And uh, to that end, we have two great panels for you. Uh, joining us in studio here is Pat Daly, who is the uh, chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth Catholic District School Board. Good to see you again, Pat. Long time no see. Great to see you, Bill. And, of course, Todd White, who is the uh, chairman of the board for, and Ward 5 trustee, of course, uh, for the uh, the Hamilton Board of Education. Good to have you with us as well. Yeah, good to see you, Bill. In let's, person. Let's, uh, yeah, finally, every now and then we grab you guys. You're all very busy, and I appreciate you taking the time to come in on, and talk about this. Uh, you've both been involved in this for the longest time now, and we've seen some challenges. And uh, and we talk about population shifts. We just had a discussion, guys, uh, in the last hour about the ward boundary issue. Uh, and you guys have your own ward boundary issues when it comes to this sort of thing. It's uh, maybe maybe not as as, as popular as a, a discussion point until all of a sudden parents find out, hey, wait a second, that's going to affect my kid. What do you mean I don't get a bus? What do you mean I can't go to that school? Uh, it's It's been a very difficult process. And uh, I guess, Pat, the biggest challenge that, that you probably are facing in all the new years that you've been doing this is basically the province, the Ministry of Education, dictates this is what's going to happen. And, uh, okay, you guys figure it out. Get back to us. Uh, and uh, so you've got the issue of school closings, population shifts, where to build new schools, etc. It's, uh, it's a very complicated matter, isn't it? Absolutely it is. And I think, you know, every government has struggled in terms of, of how to deal with it uh, and has placed... Uh, know challenges on the school boards but I think uh, both the boards in Hamilton uh, have done a very very good job in terms of planning uh, and uh, you know being very honest and open uh, with parents uh, about challenges and what indeed what opportunities there are in terms of school consolidation and building new schools it's it's interesting the planning that went into that Todd and, and this predates your time on the board and even Pat's time on the board is boards of education had to almost have this crystal ball as the city was growing. And this is even, I guess, going back to the 1950s and 60s, where they would buy big tracts of land and figuring at some point there's going to be residential development there. They're going to need a school. We better jump in and do that now. Uh, and, and that made an awful lot of sense. I mean, I attended Southmount, which is now Burbuff High School, way back in the day. Uh, and we were out in the middle of the boonies. I mean, there was, there was nothing else around there. But, I mean, the board in his vision said, no, we're g- the, you're going to need that. Uh, and the city, of course, has grown up around it right now. But it, it, it causes a, a great deal of consternation because there's ex- this expectation then as some of those residential developments start to happen where people are saying, well, that's going to be a school, and not necessarily the case because as as the city has grown but as the Board of Education has, has also looked at their numbers, you've had to reevaluate where schools mm-hmm. are going to be located. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, it's a f- it's an odd conversation because as you'd mentioned for decades the conversation was growth. And and I don't think there's a much thought in in, in some of those days about declining enrollment. It was let's build schools and in, in our case very literally we have three schools on the same block, you know, in some cases, uh, in some neighborhoods. So at one point it was just build, 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 and all of a sudden we have declining enrollment. And then we have to start making some tough decisions. There's property that's owned all over the place. So when you mentioned the crystal ball, the crystal ball was react and build. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden uh, there's declining enrollment and boards don't necessarily have long-term facility plans for that. So then we start reacting with 
school closures, but what does that look like in the big picture? So at our board, and I know the Catholic board has done this quite well over the years, which is uh, we have our long-term facilities master plan where we had to take a hard look at each and every school to say, what is the plan for this school? We can't just do this piecemeal with uh, closure here or closure here and hope it all balances really determining what are those uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 year plans and where we want to get to. So those are some of the big questions that we have to ask ourselves. Haven't always been great at it, um, but right now we've really uh, you know, pulled up our socks and uh, have really got down to business with those plans. But this is when neighbors and, and, and parents get pretty militant in some cases, Pat, when when those decisions are made. And, and, and maybe you could just, uh, as Todd was intimating, walk through that process about the evaluation. Uh, because you, you're pr- looking at this from a business standpoint, obviously. This is dollars and cents. It costs a lot of money to build these things, to maintain them, or to retrofit them in some cases. But you can't not take emotion out of it, because emotion is very much a part of the equation, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, parents, students, staff, uh, trustees uh, genuinely care about their schools, and, and that's a very, very positive thing. That's the, w- the way we want it. So I think communication... Uh, open communication is critically important to share with the parent communities uh, all of the data, uh, future projection growth, everything, so that they see the situation school boards are in. If I could follow up, Bill, on Todd's last comment, I don't think anyone, and you know this well through your positions over the years, could have projected 25 years ago the decline of school-age young people within, say, the inner city, and then the massive growth in, you know, Benbrook, Waterdown, Yeah, I don't think anyone uh, 25, 30 years ago could have ever imagined. I think that's where the real challenge has been in dealing with, uh, uh, you know, a number of uh, schools in the inner city and some parts of the mountain, but that were, you know, very much under capacity, but then having uh, schools uh, in other areas, you know, like 150% over capacity. Uh, so that's been the real challenge uh, for the government to keep up with uh, providing capital funds to build new ones and us dealing with the challenging situation of consolidation. Well, the city wasn't ready for it, so of course the yeah, boards exactly. wouldn't be ready. Nobody saw this coming, but you've you've had to, to deal with the mess as a result of this now. And and you've seen a situation, Pat, and, and it's happened even with the, the public board, Todd, where you've built new facilities and, and before they even open the doors, you're putting... Yeah, so Portable oh, classrooms absolutely. up there because exactly. all of a sudden it's over capacity. Well, yeah, we're building schools in Monona all over the place. Actually, the funny thing is, when we built our last school in Monona, we already had another one planned. <laughs> it's not we haven't received funding or property for it yet, but still, in those long-term plans, we we have schools coming up uh, in in our board. We have ten different growth areas that we've identified. Uh, so when those properties are registered in new developments, we can grab those just like that, and we're we're ready to uh, apply for those dollars. So in terms of growth areas, there there's a there's a lot of potential there, but the growth areas. As Pat mentioned, they're in basically a horseshoe around the city, and you look in the core of the city, and that's where it's the exact opposite. So you're actually playing two different, uh, you're battling two different types of battles at the exact same time. But but there's a dis- different set of criteria, obviously, between the Catholic board, etc. And I'll get used to inner city, Pat, and I'm, b- I'm glad you brought that up. Because that's obviously one of the big challenges, because we, we understand that there is going to be this migration away from the core. That happened for a couple of generations, uh, where people moved to the Stony Creeks and Ancasters and Binbrooks, etc., uh, and cause that population shift. But now we're starting to see almost a reverse of that. It's not people moving from the suburbs back in, but new people coming into the city, and they want to live in the downtown core. Uh, and, of course, you know they're saying, well, where are the educational facilities? Well, some of those things got closed down. 
Uh, and it was almost a, a, a polar opposite reaction because I remember the discussion that uh, that your board had with St. Mary's yeah. School, which uh, is a traditional school, yeah. of course, inner city school, closed down a couple of years ago. Uh, and juxtapose that with the debate you're having about Hess Street School right now in the same general neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you're facing a huge population shift uh, where people are saying and demanding that, no, we need something brand new here. We need something bigger. Yet you saw the declining numbers there simply because, yes, there's going to be an awful lot of people moving into the downtown core, but not necessarily people that would be attending a Catholic school. So it's a different scenario altogether, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, and I think under Todd's uh, leadership, they've done, the public has done a great job as well. But I have seen all this, Bill, as a real opportunity. Uh, had we not decided to consolidate schools a, a number of years ago, uh, we would have never received the provincial funding to build uh, the new elementary schools we have in the inner city. Uh, you know, and I, I could list off a number of them. Uh, the fact is we could never have done that uh, had we not consolidated. So my view is uh, that uh, clearly the students now and future students are much better off uh, in the, the newer facilities. And I think the other part of it, uh, which you have uh, commented on correctly, is even though maybe there are people moving back into the inner city, they're not going to have the size of families, the number of children that, you know, a generation or two ago uh, existed. So I don't see, and and the projections that we see uh, don't indicate a need for, uh, you know, a number of schools uh, in the uh, in the inner city coming forward. So I think uh, our, due to the great work of our planning staff, we're in good condition. Our buildings are in much better shape uh, than they were, and uh, I think we're in a very good situation. What about that? At, at getting that money, though, Todd, and accessing those provincial funds for this, and and a lot of the time, Pat's right. The discussion is usually around new facilities, but both wards are facing the same challenge now: retrofitting existing facilities. And you know, some of these buildings have good bones, but they're pretty tired, and they need an awful lot of money. Is is the province playing ball with you? Well, oh, absolutely. I think uh, per per capita per student. Our board has received more funding than any board in the province. We're over $100 million, I think, in just a couple of years. Um, We have eight new school builds on the go right now. Eight. I don't think we've ever been in that position for a number of decades, which is odd because we're also talking about declining enrollment. So the ministry is recognizing the work that we're doing uh, and and we're seeing the result, there's no doubt. But that's where we need to make the, the right decisions. As Pat mentioned, you can think of it as everything's closing or you can think of it from the stance of, we're rebuilding. So when we start rebuilding those that that amount of facilities and ex- and start to invest in the existing facilities as well, there's only so many dollars. So you better make some really focused decisions and keep uh, your planning incredibly clear because the dollars are finite. And at one point, I think when I started on our board, we had 118 uh, schools on the go. Uh, we're down to I think about 101 or 102 right now. Um, but once again. Are we going to start retrofitting schools that might close? And that's where it goes back to the point I made earlier, which is we want to look at each and every school in our inventory and say, what is the plan for this school? So we've gone around the the entire board. There's only a couple areas remaining where we haven't reviewed. But once we're done that that exercise, uh, we can invest the dollars exactly where we, we want to. We're going to talk about curriculum and, and, and challenges uh, inside the classroom in a couple of minutes with another panel. But, but, Pat, what about the challenges about amenities when you are building something and looking at this? I mean, you know, you, you go back to the old Cathedral Boys High School on Main Street there, and that classic building that's still there. 
Uh, and then you look, juxtapose that with the, well, I was going to say the new cathedral. It's not so new anymore, but it's been there for a while. But, you know, you need sporting fields. You need athletic fields. You need amenities that, uh, that, let's face it, in past generations you never even considered as part of the school. But schools are now becoming neighborhood hubs. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think, uh, you know, we're very sensitive to that, as I know uh, our friends at the public board are as well. And, Bill, just in terms of technology and uh, yeah. and you're right, uh, you know, the athletic uh, facilities, all of that, uh, clearly it's what children need uh, today to exceed and to excel. So, uh, you know, we've done a very good job, uh, I think both boards have, in that regard. Uh, and then the real challenge is to try to, predict what they're going to need in the future, right? Because, uh, you know, God only knows in terms of uh, what technology will be. So uh, clearly they're much, much different than uh, schools uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago. The one thing I want to say in that, however, and I, I say this all the time at new school openings, nice facilities, it's wonderful, but when it comes down to it, it's the quality of the leadership, the teachers, the support staff in that school that really make community, and uh, we couldn't be more prouder of the staff we have in our schools and that's really the heart of education is the staff in those buildings got a minute or two left one of the things i did want to touch on though guys is uh, is the collaboration between the boards i mean you know there there's not a lot of money being thrown at this education system right across the province right now you got to be smarter with every buck that you've got and and busing is a, an issue i know it's a contentious issue mm -hmm, right now mm -hmm. Uh, and, and you're dealing with that. But, I mean, uh, the, w the way that the boards have worked together to address some of these issues right now, I, I think bodes well for the community. Well, and I think that's where, just like any partner, you have to have a strong collaboration. And I'd say the working relationship right now between our two boards is, is quite, quite fantastic. And a lot of it comes down to sharing planning information. So when we do planning exercises and we look at a map, it's not just our schools on a map. We want to see what Catholic schools are on the map uh, because then we can start to determine what decisions we make. Also, one thing you touched on, a big component of why school boards are so important to communities, not just the schools, the green space, the amount of property yeah, in yeah. neighborhoods. Folks don't know, community members don't know the difference necessarily between a school board park and a city park. It looks like a park, you assume it's a city park. But we own vast amounts of property, probably more than anyone else in the city of Hamilton, uh, aside from the city of Hamilton itself. So looking at some of those discussions, um, we need to think of those things together and how we use that green space. So we need to know what the Catholic Board is doing. We need to know what the city of Hamilton is doing in terms of their plans. Even when we started revitalizing all of our sports fields and we started putting in uh, artificial turf fields similar to the Catholic Board, on the map we looked at it and we said, well, where are the Catholic Board's artificial turf? where are the private artificial turf fields that might exist in the city and let's try to complement this because at the end of the day there are also community resources and there's community mm -hmm. access as well to some degree so we're not going to duplicate two fields that are artificial turf within a kilometer of each other let's try to spread these things out for a community benefit for student benefit access so really it comes down to that collaboration and knowing what each partner is doing around the uh, the city of Hamilton and, and it's worked to the extent even of shared facilities and, 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 and bartering. I mean, I just used SouthMed as an example of the beginning of the conversation. I mean, that was a public school uh, when I went there. Uh, the Catholic board needed a, a South Mountain High School. Yep. Uh, the building was was not being used. To, uh, as, you know, again, there's that exactly. declining Absolutely. enrollment aspect. Salt the Catholic Fleet. board moves in. Yes. Salt yeah, Fleet, same Salt situation. Fleet. Yes. Uh, on the very same site of the old Salt Fleet High School that, uh, that my, my wife went to, uh, Rebecca, 
which is now, of course, a Catholic high school on that very site. So that kind of collaboration has paid off and probably saved, I would think, millions of dollars, really, when you look at the long term. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as Todd said, in my years in this position, clearly uh, the relationship is stronger today uh, than ever. It was good in the past, but it's, uh, it's stronger today, and we're looking at all kinds of areas. Just coming back, Bill, the one you mentioned, transportation, and putting aside the real challenge around bus driver shortage. Both boards, because of our partnership, uh, have been able to add additional services uh, at uh, you know similar costs uh, to both boards. We would not have been able to do that had we not been working so closely together. So clearly, uh, the children in both systems and the community as a whole are benefiting from it. Well, uh, continue good luck with uh, the challenges ahead. You guys have worked tremendously well over the last number of years uh, to try to make this a better educational community for uh, the citizens and certainly for the uh, the students here as well. Uh, so thanks so much for coming in today. It's good to see both of you. Thank good to see you. you. Great to see you. Pat Daly and uh, Todd White, the two chairs of the uh, Boards of Education. We'll uh, continue with our discussion about education here in the city right after this break. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, as we continue uh, with our Hamilton Hotspot feature, and, and we're focusing on education today, I want to talk about what's going on in the classroom and uh, some of the innovations that are occurring and the, and the challenges, certainly, that both the, uh, the Catholic and public boards are facing uh, to try to keep students engaged, but also to make them, well, if I can use a, a steal a phrase from Mohawk College, make the students' future ready uh, for the challenges and for the workplace in the 21st century. And uh, to that end, uh, we're so pleased to welcome uh, Dave Hansen from the, the Catholic Board. Good to see you again, Dave. Thanks hey, for morning, coming Bill. in here today. And uh, Manny Figueredo, of course, uh, the Director of Education for the Public Board. Thanks for coming in again, Manny. Oh, good good morning, to have Bill. you with us. Thank you. Dave, let me start with you and, and, and talk a little bit about this. Uh, we did a show a couple of weeks ago from the Innovation Factory right over here, and, we, and they're fabulous about helping and, and encouraging startups, and they work with McMaster University, and they're doing some great work there. But when I talk to some of these innovators and some of these people that are doing new startup businesses, they say that their biggest concern is, look at, are we preparing our students right now for those challenges? Uh, things like coding come up and some of the other innovative things that are happening. Education's changed. I, I, I was going to say it's changed from when I went to school. It's changed from last year. Uh, there, there's, there's nothing carved in stone with you guys anymore, isn't it? It's always a moving target. It, it really has, and, and coding's a perfect example in that. I, we have to think that coding's going to be the new literacy. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously mathematics is not going away, reading, writing is not going away. But this concept of coding is a new literacy. That's where the jobs are going to be. We know that there's going to be jobs there. Um, and it really has captured the interest of students and some teachers, uh, because it's a difficult piece. You're not trained. You're not trained for that. So that is the work that, that we're looking at. How do you embed that kind of learning where it's uh, authentic and creative, but a deep, deep learning experience? So, yeah, coding's a, g a great example. What is our future looking like? Because what would be the scariest thing is if you walk into a classroom, does it look like the classroom that you and I sat in? 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Or is it a classroom that more is thinking about, well, yeah, what's, what's our future look like here? But, th but therein lies the challenge. Uh, you know, first of all, you have to have that expertise, but I think m maybe the foundation for how you're meeting those challenges, Manny, is the fact that there's a lot more collaboration going on. Uh, you know, to, to Dave's point, I mean, back in the old days, it was, okay, you're in elementary school, this is the curriculum. You're gonna learn your times tables, you're gonna learn phonics, you're gonna learn grammar, 
on and on it goes. And uh, and when you're finished, well, you're going to go off to high school, and they're going to they they're going to impose their curriculum on that. Now, you guys talk to each other. Now, you talk to the universities, you talk to colleges, and 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 you're the the, the, the I guess the curriculum now is very malleable, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is, uh, Bill. I, I think we always define innovation about how are new ways we can have students demonstrate their learning. You know, not just paper and pencil. And we always talk about it needs to go beyond the classroom walls. So two things we always look at, two strategies, are the partnerships. And that's what you're hinting at. Hinting at. I mean, the partnerships with the school boards, with the colleges and universities, and all the sectors is probably stronger in Hamilton than it's, than it's ever been. Uh, we, so we think that's key because if learning is going to go beyond the classroom walls, we have to give kids experiences that m- may not or can't even be created in the classroom. And another way we look at it, what else can we uh, go beyond the classroom walls? And we know that technology, and Dave was talking about coding, but how do you put technology in the hands of students so they don't need to regurgitate information? They need to know how to analyze, synthesize, and, and problem solve. So we see partnerships and technology as two ways to really expand the classroom walls. But they're ready for it, though, aren't they, Dave? I mean, just about every student's got one of these little rascals now. I mean, I'm, I'm holding up my iPhone uh, or, or a PC at home or something like that. So in other words, uh, they're, they're looking at what they're doing at home or what they're doing in their personal life right now and saying, okay, this is 21st century technology school. I want that same sort of stuff. I want those same tools when I'm in the classroom. And, and th- that's a heavy demand and a rather expensive one, I would think, too, for boards. It, it really is an expensive demand, and you're, you're 100% right on that, Bill. I have a phone in my pocket that can land a plane. Uh, it just it hasn't happened before. And the challenge is obviously the number of devices uh, and how you provide devices and how you do that. The bigger challenge, though, is that the kids have that device, and they get out and they can access the world. And we know in the Internet there are some of the greatest things in the world for them to access, and there's some of the darkest places. So it's not only having a device and getting them out there, it's really how do you navigate when you're out there in in the world and navigate as a global citizen on the internet. And we do a lot of talking about that because that's a very worrisome piece because the freedom out there, and if they just go off and do their own thing after school and are out on the internet and doing all the things that they can do with, with, on social media, we know that there's lots of stuff that will lead us not in the right place. So we do a lot of teaching on that side of things too. How do we navigate that world out there? How do we navigate the digital world? But the devices are in the classroom. They're coming in whether we want it or not. So we need to manage that. But it's a great tool though, Manny. I mean, you know, it, it, I know that in, when people started using these in, in such large numbers, there's this concern that, well, is it going to make students lazy? I, I think it opens more doors for them. Uh, I mean, we had tools too, but you know, we had textbooks and I know those are still around, etc. But Never did learn how to use a slide rule. Uh, that, that's one of my shortcomings. Uh, but I'm over it now. I can get rid of it. But but these little devices here right now are an incredible tool because everything is wrapped up right there for you. And you've got all those tools. It's just a matter of, I guess, as, as Dave mentioned, teaching the students how to use them and how to access them. Yeah. We, we talk often about we teach the students to be safe in the physical world, and we need to also teach them how to be safe and navigate in the digital world. Um, it, this really is a question around equity. So if we leave it up to, up to students to bring their own devices, we might have challenges because certain communities might be able to afford it than others. Um, our trustees have taken, you know, a very aggressive stance. So across our district, we have provided tablets for every classroom grade four to eight. So every teacher gets their device and, and every classroom gets a kit. And our secondary schools now, grade nine and ten, we're one-to-one. So every kid gets their own device. Um, and we're going to 
continue to roll that out. But one of the challenges that, uh, when you provide the technology is then the professional development with teachers, right? How do you use this tool to meet the curriculum expectations and also to sort of relinquish a bit of control? And how do I facilitate in, the, in, this, in, in this new era? And what it, it really allows, it interrupts the sort of the traditional teaching methods because students are saying, I'm not going to copy that note off the board um, because I have that information at my fingertips. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've seen great gains in terms of our teachers um, really wanting to use this tool in a different way. And we're seeing possibilities that we, we didn't see a few years ago, and especially students with special needs. I mean, we're seeing now students who are integrated because of the assistive technology, it's normal. It's normalized. Where in the past, someone might needed a device because they had a special learning need. Now, everyone accesses the device. So it's really been a game changer with some of the features, accessibility features that the do- these devices provide. There was a time, Dave, uh, you just talked about the classroom environment, uh, where the teacher stood at the front of the class and basically dictated, taught uh, to the students who were supposed to take notes and write them down off the, the, the board if they had to, etc., and, and, and then regurgitate them back in the way of some sort of a test or an exam or something like that. Talk to us about how interactive the classroom is right now. It's, it's, it's a different environment, but it's also a different attitude in the classroom. It, it really does. The, the classroom of the, the straight rows and uh, the teacher as the uh, sage on the stage is really, really going away now. This is, we just did a large scale study actually of, of infusing uh, mobile de- devices into grade four and five classrooms. And this was across uh, all of the elementary schools, so 49 principals, 55 teachers, about 1,500 kids. And we're just getting to the end of the research part of it. But the level of collaboration was one of the indicators that we looked at, and that's collaboration between students mm-hmm. and between co- uh, teachers in the, and other colleagues in the classroom moved dramatically over the course of the training and the work that was, was done in this. And you could see it in the classroom environment, in how people move together. And, and you know, if you talk to any of the companies, what they're looking for from our graduates are people that can come in and communicate and collaborate and problem solve. And technology is definitely a tool that helps us move to collaboration and problem solving because that's what our, our the world out there is looking for when they're looking to employ somebody. So absolutely the classroom of teacher at the front and delivers their lesson and, and students copy down notes from an overhead is a time of the past. Moving into collaboration and using devices and accessing the world in the classroom. Is but but really it's, it's a blurred line now between, okay, the academia and, and the hands-on experience. I mean, that used to be very different. I mean, you'd have to get the academic a- aspect and then, okay, th- you're qualified now, now you can get the hands-on experience. But you guys are doing that on a daily basis. And I guess the, the, the topic that comes to mind right off the bat, Manny, is robotics. I mean, th- it's very much a part of what's going on in, in, at the elementary level now. Yeah, we were fortunate. So fortunate enough last year, we talk about partnerships, how they're important. Uh, we had our first elementary uh, robotics coding competition. That happened because we had... Y- you guys have taken the science fair idea to a different level, yeah. haven't you? But that's, it's because we have key partners like uh, ArcelorMittal DeFasco, who provided a grant, working with the Industry Education Council, provided some mentors, and worked with our teachers. Um, so we had a, a... And the kids are interested. But what some of the teachers said is that I learned just to step back and let the students teach me. And that's, and that's perfectly fine. And, and you're right, around the experience of things that we, students wouldn't have had 20 years ago. I think about our students who work on construction, build a home for habit, through Habitat for Humanity through our construction program, 
or students who, who are in Dravinsky Hospital with their health support program or uh, students who are doing coding, as you described. But all of those experiences, they're asked to do those skills that Dave mentioned, collaboration, uh, problem solving, communicate. And they're experiencing t real life technology in all those workplaces. But what's great is they can do it as they're gaining their, their graduation diploma. But that keeps them engaged though, doesn't it, Dave? I mean, I had some students in here from Thomas More, I think it was last year, uh, and they were talking about the robotics program and the competitions, international competitions, Absolutely. that these guys are taking part in right now. Uh, I mean, this is not just, okay, go home and read Chapter 5. I mean, this is, hey, go build something, and, and let's see just how, how effective you can be with it. it. It's relevance. It's So it means something to the students. In the robotics example, they talk about entrepreneurship. They have presentation skills. It's mathematics skills. It's coding skills. It's IT skills. It's teamwork. It's collaboration. But it's relevant to the students. And so if uh, teachers can't draw the relevance in learning, learning becomes more difficult. It becomes a book exercise. This becomes that hands-on learning. It becomes relevant in somebody's life. And you actually see a pathway. You see a pathway that you might go into in the future as you move into the workforce. And, and you can see that there's a real connection between what you're learning in the classroom and what, what the real world is. is well, because th that's been the challenge just from day one, isn't it, for education, is, is most kids, first of all, probably don't want to be there. Uh, you know, they'd rather be out playing or doing whatever. Uh, but the other element is, is, is when they are sitting there paying attention and uh, th there's this thing, well, this is, this is abstract to me. I mean, how is this going to relate to me? I mean, how many times, uh, you know, did I hear when I was going to high school, people say, why am I going to learn geography? It doesn't mean anything to me. Why should I learn math? You know, but this hands-on experience, I mean, th they don't have to make that connection because the connection's self-evident, obviously, because they're actually doing something as opposed to just learning or regurgitating something. It, uh, absolutely. Many, many kind of referenced it. The, uh, referenced it, the uh, specialist high skills major allows students to actually learn. They can learn English and math, but contextualized, for the kind of pathway that they think they might be going into, be it healthcare or, or uh, not-for-profit or, or media or technology. And it, we're getting huge, huge uptake. 50% more of our students are graduating having had contextualized learning, applying their learning out with a business in the real world, looking at that real world. There was a, a rather controversial issue with that, that uh, I think it was when Dalton McGinney was the premier man where, you know, they, they passed this law that said students had to stay in school till a certain age. You couldn't drop out early because there were some alarmingly high numbers when it looked at dropout ratios. But keeping them engaged like that is, is, is really, that's the carrot on the stick, isn't it? To keep them engaged. I want to go to school because, you know, I'm doing stuff that I really enjoy in school. It is. And, uh, student taught us a great lesson. He, he used this uh, formula. He said E equals MC squared. His name was Sam Berenger. He was at Westdale. He said engagement means uh, motivation. That's what the M stands for. And C squared means connection twice. It means the connection between teacher and student needs to be strong and you need to be motivated because the learning is relevant. Then you get engagement. And that was his definition of engagement, E equals MC squared. And that's always resonated with me. But we have to realize that you know there's many demands on our educators, and we as a system need to help them focus and prioritize in terms of what what needs to be the key essential learnings for students as teachers try to maneuver through many curriculum documents. And as you learn this way, what becomes challenging at times is how do I assess? So when I integrate things, then how do I break down the assessment? And this is what teachers are telling us, but then that's our responsibility 
at the board to respond to, to that and empower our teachers to feel comfortable to take those risks with their students. What about the curriculum? You still get marching orders from the ministry, Dave, and, and this is what you need to do, and you have to have this unit taught, et cetera, et cetera, and this is the deadline, and then there's going to be some, some testing, obviously, in some of the situation as well. Is it keeping up with the pressure and with what you're trying to do, uh, is it, or is it handcuffing you in, in trying to, to, to be the, that, that creative outlet, I guess, for students these days? The curriculum is always first and foremost for our teachers. I think, to be really clear, the absolute best thing for uh, a student in a classroom is a teacher. Uh, That absolutely is it. Everything else, all of these other devices that open up the classroom walls and take us around the world are tools for the teacher to access that curriculum. So the curriculum will sit there, and there are key learnings, as Manny has suggested, that, that are at the heart of each curriculum that teachers need to deliver on and that that we need to help our teachers understand how to deliver on that. And the tools, uh, mobile devices and laptops and computers and cell phones, those help the teacher get to the curriculum. So I I don't really see the curriculum as a a, um, limiting uh, factor. It's what the teachers have an expectation to deliver on. The tool helps them to deliver on it in new and innovative ways, not just read the book. Now, let's go out to St. Peter's Square and see a pope be elected while it's, while it's happening. Well, yeah. I, I mean, going back to my elementary school days, I mean, we used to have one school trip a year, and that was the big deal. You know, we would go to the art gallery or something like that. I mean, the, there's a lot of outside-the-classroom learning that's going on. But with all these fabulous things that are happening, as, as we've said, there's there probably been more innovations uh, in, in education in the 15 minutes that you guys have been sitting here. <laughs> uh, you know, when you get back on your phone, when you get out of here, you can say, well, by the way, guess what's going on now? How do you get ahead of it? How do you stay ahead of it, Manny? I mean, how, how do you be proactive on this as opposed to reactive? I think you've, uh, the question you're asking is a good one. We as the directors or, or leaders, we can never get ahead of it. But our job is then to make create the conditions for our educators to come together and network, right? So we need, to, as we want our students to be collaborative, we as a system look at, have to look at a professional development to say, is our professional development actually meeting the needs of our educators? And we provide opportunities for them to collaborate and share their ideas because the best ideas are coming from the classrooms not from our board offices. So our job is to make sure our PD is responsive to their needs and let teachers connect and share th- the great <laughs> ideas. But the, the community is responsive to this too, though, Dave. When you look at what's going on here, I mean, you know, you were talking about, uh, for instance, uh, corporate sponsorship for some of these science things that are going on, the projects, the robotics, etc. I mean, 25 years ago, corporate would say, wait, why would I invest something in an ele- elementary school? But I think they've come to the realization right now that it's to their benefit to actually invest in that because that's that's the workforce of tomorrow that they're investing in. That's, that's it exactly. exactly. They know that their responsiveness to schools is uh, equally important because this is this is how we move forward our city. This is how we move forward forward our community. Uh, partners like Arsenal uh, Metal DeFasco are great great innovators who give our students possibilities to see what their work world looks like. Who come into us and say, "How can we help you provide well trained individuals who can communicate, who can work with each other, who can innovate, who can really be." Uh, get out there and do interesting things. What can we do to help you uh, in doing that? That's a sea change that, uh, for industry and for partners out there to say, how do we come in and help you? We know what your job is, but 
There's things that you're not funded for. How can we help you to get there? And so that new partnership is, is absolutely essential in, in the new world of, of education. And that's one of the fundamental changes, I think. When we talk about Hamilton's uh, renaissance and economic resurgence that's gone on here, uh, you know, we're, yes, there's still manufacturing, but there's, high, there's uh, research and development going on in the healthcare field. There's startups here that are going on in the tech field these days. Uh, and but the realization is is that uh, that the educational facilities, Manny, are part of that process right now. It's it's not well, uh, you know, when you guys are finished and get your degree or whatever it is that you're going to get, then come knock on our door. Those places are knocking on your door now and saying, "How can we help?" Yeah, absolutely. I think what we have in common is we're all interested in what's the vision of the graduate we have, and I think Dave touched about those key skills. They're knocking. We've opened the door, and we've really promoted partnerships. And one of the challenges of the partnerships is, is aligning it to the goals. Because uh, when every time a, a true partnership, if someone brings something to the table, at the end of the day, the students are front and center. We're seeing that more. They're not waiting. Um, they're not waiting till they graduate. They're interested now because we want to keep our students who graduate also in Hamilton, and to be contributing citizens in all these sectors. So I think the the our, our private partners realize it's too late once they leave the city how do we engage them now so they can actually create a pathway that actually leads to a, maybe a post-secondary education or a trade and they see that there's actually a future in hamilton and i think that's what's really driving the, the key uh, uh sorry the key institutions in hamilton so much more to talk about here but we're right out of time in this segment so we'll have to have you guys back in and maybe we can uh, peel back a few more layers and talk about this thanks so much for coming in today though great to see you both great to see you bill thank you bill manny figuardo and of course uh, dave hansen uh, from uh, the hamilton uh, catholic board and of course the board of education here in the city the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900 chml Thank <laughs> you.